0: not nothing
1: more! I don't know what this is! That's a living thing! That... This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, or as close as a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there! Sea monsters, majestic horned beasts, terrifying predators, even giants living in the darkest, coldest parts of deep space. A galaxy far, far away is brimming with wild and wonderful life forms. I've always had a special affinity for the monsters and creatures of Star Wars. And I think the reason goes back even further than the movies. I'm Mark, your host for this special Creature Feature episode of Forever Star Wars. To understand why I'm so taken with this subject, You have to know what kind of kid I was. Anyone who knows me knows that for my entire life, I've loved dinosaurs. And of course, that fascination started young. Lots of children feel that way about prehistoric animals, but for me, dinosaurs were more than just amazing giants that populated the pages of natural history books. They were like mythical creatures, but they were real. They actually walked the same earth I did. I think it was this feeling of awe and wonder that made dinosaurs more special than just cool toys to collect and play with. And as that kind of kid, I was hardwired to find any and all monsters and creatures fascinating. And Star Wars had plenty to show me. Star Wars is a modern mythology. It takes the same themes and ingredients of ancient mythology and wraps them in the packaging of a space fantasy. One of the oldest elements in great mythologies is the existence of the monster. Beowulf had Grendel, Hercules fought the many-headed Hydra, the Algonquin tribe had the voracious Wendigo. Indo-European and Near Eastern mythologies were among the first cultures to tell of giant serpents, what we would come to know as dragons, that would thrill and terrify the human imagination for countless generations turns out monsters have been a part of mythological storytelling from the very beginning. (laughs) The creatures of Star Wars are captivating because they tap into that primal cultural memory we all share, but the monsters we see in Star Wars are also the product of a much more recent pop cultural phenomenon, the giant monster craze of the 20th century.
0: What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Steve Martin signing off from Tokyo, Japan. And to stay in your memory, as the most thrilling sequence ever photographed in motion picture history, the terrifying battle with the giant squid.
1: Hollywood has been using monsters to thrill audiences for the better part of the past century. Few images are as iconic as watching a giant gorilla swat at airplanes from the top of the Empire State Building. Not to be outdone, Japan created their own iconic monster, due in part to their society's fears about atomic weapons and the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was a big screen adaptation of the beloved Jules Verne novel and featured a spectacular clash with an ocean titan, the giant squid. The simplest way to explain the appeal of movie monsters is to see them as allegories, man against nature. Their cautionary tales Despite humankind's intelligence and technology, we're still relatively small and insignificant next to the size and scope of nature, and we are sorely outmatched. In order to thoroughly explore the creatures, beasts, and monsters of Star Wars, I'd like to do something a little different than my usual format. Let's do a countdown. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. This is my countdown. You might agree, or might not, with the ranking of these monsters. You might even be dismayed that I left one or two of your favorites off the list. So I'm going to briefly highlight some honorable mentions along the way. Hopefully, that'll cover most of them. And if not, you can always email or mention me on Twitter to let me know what I missed. Okay, so I'm only going to feature animals that have appeared in either the films or the animated series. That means no creatures from the expanded universe, from video games, or from the novels. Sound good? Let's get started at number 10.
0: the sound of that.
2: If that creature's as powerful as they say, what good are these rifles gonna be? Ah, shut up, Cosmos.
1: Kicking off the countdown is a monster unlike any other. There aren't many runners up in this category because it's in a category all its own. I guess maybe the crate Dragon would be similar, but The Krayt Dragon is disqualified from the list because we only see its skeleton in A New Hope. Number 10 on the countdown pays homage to the classic movie monsters I spoke about earlier. The Zillow Beast was featured in a multi-episode arc in the Clone Wars animated series, and it explored what it would be like if a Godzilla-type monster was let loose on the city planet Coruscant. The Zillow Beast was discovered on the planet Malastare during the Clone War. The Dugs believed the ancient creature to be only a legend, but the legend was awakened by an electro-proton bomb detonated by the Republic, a not-so-subtle nod to the atomic weapons that created Godzilla in the 1954 movie. I chose the Zilla Beast for my countdown because of its close ties with its source material. The monsters and beasts of Star Wars have always been throwbacks to ancient myths or references to pop culture history, so telling a Godzilla story in a galaxy far, far away wasn't much of a stretch. But in spite of being mostly spectacle, the Zilla Beast arc hints at a much darker purpose behind Palpatine's interest in the Beast's armor plating. It's armor that can repel lightsabers. If someone wanted to create clone trooper armor that would be impenetrable to lightsabers, that someone could pose a great danger to the Jedi Order. Clone Wars writer and director, Dave Filoni. The Zilla Beast himself, I knew had to be different you know, it's, it's rare that George will ever approve something like the lightsaber not cutting, What? but it had to do something we've never seen before. But the pilot's names I think are Rod and Goji. And if you look on Goji's helmet, I had a emblazoned painting of this creature with eyes on it with these weird like fungal barbs. That's actually like my little mimic of Godzilla. And then Rod has these pteranodons painted on his helmet, and that's Rodan. Also, I've looked really closely for this. But on the chest of the uh, tactical droid that's leading the army, he shows up in one shot, he has a symbol on him. Go! Go! And that symbol is reminiscent of the oxygen destroyer that actually kills Godzilla in the very first Godzilla movie in 1954. I can't say the Zilla Beast is my favorite monster design. It sort of looks like a cross between a turtle and a tapeworm. But the Godzilla tropes, such as the climactic battle to destroy the creature with poison gas, are great action sequences. And as any good monster story does, the Zilla Beast's death makes us feel sorry for it, underscoring the importance of empathy, something Star Wars is known for. on the countdown is a kind of animal seen often in the Star Wars films and TV series. Mounts, or domesticated riding animals, are everywhere in a galaxy far, far away. Honorable mentions go out to the Boga from Revenge of the Sith, the Ronto and the EOpi from The Phantom Menace, Fathiers from The Last Jedi, and Blurgs in the Ewok movies, Clone Wars series, and The Mandalorian on Disney+. But number nine goes to the noble resident giants of the desert planet Tatooine, With hair down to their feet and cruller-shaped horns, these gentle behemoths made quite an impression on audiences back in 1977. In an era before computer effects, the Banthas were achieved using an ingeniously practical solution. It was a costume, thrown over an elephant. Margie, as she was called, was an Asia elephant on loan from Marine World Africa, USA. And you can even see her trainer in A New Hope when the Tusken Raider jumps on the Banthas back. That's him. Though not ideal for either the Death Valley production or Margie herself, George Lucas made the most of the Bantha costume for these shots. And I have to say, the effect is pretty convincing, if not comfortable for poor Margie. During this episode, I'll be referencing a fantastic book that you should really check out. The Wildlife of Star Wars, a field guide, gives so much information on the Bantha species, along with highly detailed illustrations by Lucasfilm designer, Terrell Whitlatch. Banthas live in matriarchal herds of up to 25 individuals. Highly intelligent, Banthas can grow as large as 4,000 kilos and live as long as 100 years. They're not only domesticated by the Tusken Raiders, they also share a deep interspecies bond with them. With Tuscans growing close to their Bantha Mount and forming a lifelong bond that's only broken by the death of rider or mount. At number eight, I'm featuring one of the more spectacular forms of life in the galaxy. Interstellar lifeforms live in the vacuum of space, uniquely evolved to thrive where there's little or no oxygen, sunlight, organic life, or rarely water. These creatures are a marvel. They include the Exogorth in The Empire Strikes Back.
0: The cave is collapsing. This is no cave. What?
1: The purgles, or space whales, of Star Wars Rebels animated series.
0: OK, we're low on fuel, surrounded by asteroids, and caught in a swarm of Pergil. How has the situation improved, exactly? A nod, here comes a really big one.
1: But the space behemoth that makes my list is none other than the Summa Verminoth from Solo A Star Wars Story. With tentacles that stretch kilometers and pupils larger than a small freighter, these are the true giants of deep space, often living right at the edge of gravity wells and inside dense matter nebulas. Plus, I just like saying the name, Summa Verminoth. Verminoth. Aaron Dusol, visual effects producer for Solo a Star Wars story, describes how the Summa Verminoth was brought to life.
2: We get the script, we have a description, we have to figure out how we're going to take that description and turn it into a visual. So James Klein and his team and Aaron McBride with the space monster get involved, start doing the designs. We then pass those to the Sunny's team, the modelers, and they start to create this five mile long monster.
1: Since Han Solo fancies himself a space pirate, it's only fitting that his adventures in deep space would bring him in contact with monsters of the deep. The Summa Verminoth. Follows a long tradition of beasts of seafaring legends and classic fiction like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Plus, it provides even more embellishment for Hans' fabled Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. For all its technological advancement, the Empire isn't above using an antiquated form of travel if it suits their means. At number seven, The dewbacks, those stout lumbering green lizards, first appeared as rather static props in the background scenes of the original Star Wars, but the special edition in 1977 gave us our first up-close and personal look at the scaly scoundrels. Why would stormtroopers utilize live animals as mounts?
2: Someone was in the pod. The tracks go off in
1: this direction. Look, sir, droids. They have a variety of strange and wonderful walking transports, for instance. George Lucas has a pretty good answer. The idea was that uh, there was a creature like a dewback that existed in the desert, you know, like a lizard, um, that was very adaptable to the desert and was actually much uh, better in terms of maintenance and upkeep than a machine which the sand would get into and, uh, you know, it was very expensive to keep those machines going out there in the middle of the desert where the dewbacks are very cheap uh, to run and uh, they last a lot longer. The original Star Wars featured large static dummies that didn't move very much, except for in the head, so they didn't have a lot of screen time. But the special editions gave Lucas the chance to play around with the digital technology And show the impressive size and detail of dewback mounts as troopers search for clues around the ejected escape pod. The Wildlife Field Guide publication has a great section on dewbacks with lots of illustrations detailing these reptilian desert dwellers. For instance, do you know why they're called dewbacks? It's because they get moisture from licking the dew off the backs of other members of their herd. They're also very easy to domesticate if raised from an egg. And although slow moving, they can be known to reach fifty kilometers per hour during short bursts of speed. Terrell Whitlatch describes some of the thought behind her redesign of the dobacks for the special edition.
2: And I thought about well what is a doback like? You know, I start thinking about their personality, you know. Obviously how large they are, how heavy are they, that um, was pretty important, the sheer bulk of the creature and how fast could it move Then I thought well do they have how many babies does it have you know how long do they live all kinds of thoughts like that and um, I figured that it may have some um, characteristics like a camel like a dromedary and so I added some features like these calluses on the chest and on the elbows I emphasized the hump up here on its neck a little bit because perhaps it stores its fat because it has to go long periods of time without eating. It just has a thick rhinoceros-like skin, and the feet have spongy pads like a camel's feet.
1: The new and improved dewbacks were unveiled in the wake of Jurassic Park, another of my all-time favorite movies. And out of all the creatures on the top ten list, the dewback is the most dinosaur-like. And being a huge Jurassic Park dinosaur freak, how could I not put it on the list?
0: Start to walk. Which way? Anyway, just walk forward. If we could turn around to us slightly.
1: If you ever have the chance to watch vintage behind-the-scenes footage of the making of The Empire Strikes Back, you'll notice that the sixth creature on my list was a rather difficult one to pull off convincingly on camera. The Wampa of the planet Hoth is a towering, terrifying, abominable monstrosity. But if you get a decent look at the suit used for the movie, he's anything but terrifying lumbersome and awkward the wampa looks more like a poorly designed mascot for the Hoff hockey team the behind-the-scenes footage shows the actor struggling to keep his balance in the snow frequently falling over as he tried to drag Mark Hamill by his foot half a dozen crewmen would then scurry over and surround the free klutz and work to get him back on his feet
0: Okay, okay, Des. Right, lift. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. We'll have to do it by hand. It's the surface and, and, and
2: being not able to see anything when I'm inside the, uh, inside the head. Everything is just a complete
1: nothing. It makes sense that the original Empire Strikes Back would only offer glimpses of the wampa and that almost always works more effectively. We only need flashes of a monster and our imaginations fill in the rest keeping it off-screen for most of its presence in the film was a smart decision by director Irvin Kirshner. There's another famous deleted scene from Empire involving a group of wampas breaking into Echo Base and causing chaos. It just didn't work on any level. The wampas were goofy and looked exactly like people in suits. It was a no-brainer to cut it from the film. But in the special edition, George was determined to give the big guy the close-up he deserved. The special edition scenes in the cave with luke hanging upside down finally delivered on the promise of showing how large and terrifying wampas really were the shots of it eating a tauntaun its mouth covered in blood and gristle conveys the visceral horror of this wild beast of the snow plains and it gives our hero another monster of myth to slay on his hero's journey
0: Help.
2: In the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, you will see the two-headed rock of the Arabian Nights Tales, a bird with the wingspread of a jet airliner. You will see it attack a shipload of sailors and carry Sinbad away in its talons. You will see a fight to a finish between a 50-foot cyclops and a 100-foot dragon. You will see an astonishing sword fight between Sinbad and a skeleton
1: which comes to life at the magician's bidding. When I was, oh, about four or five years old, the 1958 film The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad was re-released in theaters. Its stop-motion monsters were about the only thing I remember about it, but that was enough to leave an impression. George Lucas, being a fan of movie history, was aware of the contributions of Ray Harryhausen, the special effects animator who brought to life the original King Kong. Harryhausen worked for decades in Hollywood, bringing all kinds of creatures and monsters to life, from the T-Rex in the Valley of Guanji to Medusa in Clash of the Titans. His work inspired an entire generation of filmmakers, from Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg to, of course, Lucas. So the creature that lands on the halfway mark at number five on the list pays direct respect to the stop-motion work of Ray Harryhausen. The Acklay, featured in the Geonosian arena in Attack of the Clones, is but one animal in that segment. Joining the Reek and the Nexu, the Acklay helps to make the arena sequence one of my favorite moments in the prequel trilogy. I've got a bad feeling about this. The accolade itself, it was just one of those characters that I was really honored to be able to work on because it was just different. Danny Wagner, model maker for ILM. Cross between, I mean, like an insect type, uh, kind of like a, like a reptile, um, has all these little details on. I mean, the back is kind of furry. It looked like one of those characters that was really just very original because it had all these different elements to it. And the detail was like trying to put different animals or different insects and put them all mesh into one character. Wagner brings up a good point about what makes good design for all of the creatures on this countdown. They're grounded in something familiar. The Acklay, while complex in its design details, has an instantly recognizable silhouette. It's basically a crab. It also has a shape similar to a praying mantis. So with the Acklay, you get this weird unsettling hybrid with a head. That's not like anything at all. It's the perfect monster marquee attraction. I'm sure Ray Harryhausen would have designed something much like it if he'd been around to lend his artistry to the prequel trilogy. For the next category of monster at number four, let's choose something with tentacles. No. No. Not tars definitely not tars It should be something that hides underground, preferably in the desert. Korkin. No, not the Nightwatch worm, although that's a much closer beast to what I have in mind. Sticking with the execution theme of the Acklay and the monsters of the Geonosian arena, I'd like to feature an even more blood-curdling choice, the creature that provided Jabba the Hutt and his court with spectacle executions in the pit of Carcoon. The Sarlacc of Return of the Jedi extends far below the surface of Tatooine. She's a giant arthropod whose sole purpose is digestion. Her gaping, fang-lined maw, beak-tipped mandibles, and tentacles are the only thing visible on the surface, usually at the base of a dune, with steep grades treacherous to both unlucky animals and unlucky prisoners of Jabba the Hutt. Jabba has chosen this voracious living stomach because it allows him to indulge his special brand of sadistic cruelty. The sarlacc's gastric juices contain an enzyme that keeps prey alive and in a kind of suspended animation while it's digested slowly, sometimes as many as a thousand years. The sarlacc lives a long time, a very long time, with lifespans that can reach 50,000 years. It has incredibly slow and patient metabolism, going years or even centuries without feeding on anything at all. One more surprising detail about Sarlaccs. They're an interplanetary nomadic species. They can move from one planet to another, and are often found on planets other than Tatooine, with Felucia being the most common. The Sarlacc is at number four on the list, because not only is it a cool concept of the less-is-more approach to monster design, its location provides one of the most exciting set pieces in the entire saga. This is the moment Luke returns as the Jedi, and is reunited with Han and Leia as they escape the evil clutches of the vile gangster Jabba the Hutt.
2: Give you sa on the bongo. A speediest way to the Nabu tis going through the planet core. Go. Thank you for your help. We leave in peace. Master, what's the bongo? A transport, I hope.
1: Lucas was like a kid in a candy store when it came to the Phantom Menace. After struggling with practical effects in the original trilogy, he finally had a chance to fill his movies with a wide assortment of strange creatures in spectacular locations, and no other scene in The Phantom Menace encapsulates this better than the Ocean Abyss of Naboo. There are several sea creatures I could list here at number 3, and I almost just made it a group tie for all of them, including the OPC Killer and the Cola Clawfish, but one sea monster rises above all others there was always a bigger fish the sando aqua monster isn't just bigger it's badder than just about anything in the star wars universe save for the yet unseen crate dragon the one upmanship of this scene is wildly entertaining the opc killer looks like a pretty formidable threat until an even larger terror swims out of the deep to overtake it I get a distinctive Kraken vibe from this monster as it's featured not once, but twice in Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Jar Jar's descent into the depths of the planet core. The Sando is another one of Terrell's creature designs, so I'll let her explain where she got the inspiration for it.
2: I wanted to make it more mammalian, even though he has got gills. There's a lot of panther, there's a lot of tiger, in this animal, crossed with an otter, a little bit of whale, and a little bit of deep water um, fish, just for the luminescence, a little bit of the tail. In my biology of this creature, not only does it have gills, but it does have some lungs. It can haul itself out on the surface if it wants to. If it wants to, say, snatch a large, oblivious mammal thundering by, it can. When I saw this creature on screen, I was absolutely thrilled. This was just probably about my favorite creature that, oh, that I
1: worked on. There's a common complaint I've seen around the use of monsters and creatures in Star Wars, and that's the notion that they're overused for action set pieces. They feel superfluous or indulgent. I couldn't disagree more. Some of the monster designs are certainly more inspired than others, but lots of thought and story typically goes into the design of these creatures. As you can hear from Terrell's description, Terrell's description, The artists give these animals a complex story of survival, and you get a sense that just by looking at them, they're a thriving part of the Star Wars ecosystem. They do have a purpose in the chain of life, and life feeds the force. Even if the way that the monsters are used in the films is a bit on the nose, what would Star Wars be without its monsters? Here we are at the penultimate choice on my countdown list. The Beast almost made it to number one. It's just that good. There's a trick in movie making that I mentioned before: delaying the reveal of a monster for as long as possible. Classic examples are the aforementioned Wampa and even the shark in the movie Jaws. You
2: heard him, slow ahead. Slow ahead. I can go slow
0: ahead. Come on down and chump some of this.
1: They happened that way because of problems in the production, so withholding them from the audience was a way to make the most of this limitation.
2: You're going to need a bigger
1: boat. But it turned out, in both cases, to be a highly effective approach. Allowing the minds of the audience to run wild always builds anticipation. Jurassic Park does this as well by waiting more than an hour before finally showing the show-stopping T-Rex. In Return of the Jedi, we aren't allowed to see what's lurking in the dungeon of Jabba's palace. When he drops Ula into that pit, we know it can't be good for her. But we're denied seeing the rancor until Luke has his encounter with the beast.
0: The Rancor monster was George coming in and saying, hey, we need a big monster for this pit scene. Stop-motion animator Phil Tippett. My idea was like um, a cross between a bear and a potato. <laughs> there were rods that would allow the feet to walk. There were rods that came up the arms, allowed the arms to twist and the hands to open. There were, that were operated by another operator, and then I would uh, drive the head of the thing It was a hole in the back and I could put my hand in its mouth as a kid growing up I assumed that every
1: creature on Tatooine was native to the planet but this isn't so with Rancors standing 5 meters tall and weighing up to 1,650 kilos they're actually indigenous to Dathomir and are domesticated by the witch clans who call it home the Rancor in Jabba's dungeon was a gift like a pet it even has a name Patissa, which is Hatis for Friend. What lands the Rancor at number two isn't just the design, which is amazing. Its fangs and claws are menacing, but there's something sad and empathetic about its beady little eyes and short bulldog-like face. Luke's encounter with the Rancor is a straightforward guy fights monster action set piece, but it takes a turn towards the end that's unexpected. <laughs> with that little whimper we're suddenly confronted with the sad reality of the rancor it was a victim of Jabba's cruelty too and instead of the rousing cheer that usually occurs when a hero slays a beast instead we kind of feel sorry for it that's the mark of a truly great movie monster whether falling from the Empire State building or dying under a fallen chamber door The monster's death reminds us of the terrible cost of humankind's quest to dominate nature. (laughs) Here we are. Number one. My absolute favorite creature in the galaxy far, far away. Any guesses? Okay then, without any further ado. I've already highlighted the domesticated mounts earlier in the countdown, but you may have noticed a glaring omission. That's because this mount stands tusks and shoulders above all the others. The Tauntaun of The Empire Strikes Back was the very first time in the Star Wars movie franchise, chronologically speaking, that we got to see an up-close and personal view of a magnificent and weird beast of the Star Wars galaxy, complete with icy breath, convincing fur, and a voice that's hard to forget. The introduction of Luke riding a tauntaun at the beginning of the movie was the first indicator that The Empire Strikes Back was going to be a very different kind of sequel. Animator Phil Tippett.
0: The tauntauns and the walkers were the two first things that got the stop motion department up and running on Empire making replicas of of things that you could not produce any other way and making articulated models of strange creatures, putting them in photographic backgrounds and trying as hard as you could to make it appear as though those performances that were shot one frame at a time had the same mass and weight and lighting effects as the photographic backgrounds that your live characters are in. The
1: Tauntaun is the preeminent example of what I like to call fantasy verisimilitude. It's something that the art designers of these stories have been using throughout the franchise's 40 plus year history. It's the practice of taking a far out idea for a new and unique creature and designing it with real world influences, things that are vaguely recognizable. The Tauntaun is a hodgepodge of real world animals. It's got horns, but they face forward like the tusks of an elephant its face is reminiscent of a camel it has tiny mammalian ears like a rodent and the fur of its body is very rat-like but its overall anatomy is that of a theropod dinosaur and as a 10-year-old who loved dinosaurs I was smitten at first sight the tauntaun was unlike anything I'd ever seen
0: George wanted to see some designs for this creature that was essentially a horse and I think it was characterized as a snow lizard. So I just did a whole bunch of you know, eight or 10 drawings, and then I did like a little clay maquette of one of the drawings with a little rider on the back of it, which was my best guess. We brought that up to George, and he picked it. and said, well, this looks like a good, good one. And that was the idea. It was just a thing that got people from A to B that just helped kind of flesh out the reality of the snow landscape of Hoth.
1: The effect is so convincing that even to this day I have to keep reminding myself that tauntons are not actual living, breathing animals who share my world. They came from the imagination of the artists. And that imagination has no limitations when the world is their canvas. I'll let Terrell Whitlatch take us out of this episode in her own words about the wonderful inspiration that she gets for these wild, wonderful animals of Star Wars.
2: Star Wars creatures are animals that you can relate to. You think, I, I saw something like this in the zoo or the aquarium or my dinosaur book. I think I can imagine being able to ride that creature, to pet it, to run away from it, to, that it, ex- it could exist. And make makes the movies real. And I think that's where George had his genius. And he allowed me and my other co-workers to do that, to say, let's bring some things to life. What an incredible opportunity!
1: That's a wrap on this special countdown episode of Forever Star Wars. I covered my favorites on this list, but by no means did I mention all the fauna of Star Wars that I love. I didn't get a chance to mention the Dianoga, the Krikna, or the Drexel. I could fill hours of airtime talking about each of them. But I want to hear what you love. What's your favorite pick? Let me know on Twitter. You can find me at Marquis, spelled D-J-M-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. My Instagram is Marquis 1205 And if you haven't already, subscribe to the Clashing Sabers podcast so you'll be notified when there's a new episode of Forever Star Wars or Starships or Don't Burn the Sacred Texts. And check out clashingsabers.net for more insightful commentary on this galaxy far, far away. Take care, I'll see you soon. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders clashing sabers and forever star wars are not affiliated with lucasfilm disney or any of their subsidiaries the commentary and production of this series is the property of clashing sabers and forever star wars and may only be used with permission until next time may the force be with you and always remember
2: he looks strong enough to pull ears off a gun dart